famed author Clive Cussler. The hero Dirk Pitt. Poetry readings are absolutely my favorite soirees. I wouldn't miss one for all the lace in China. He laughed loudly at his own left-handed joke. You're going to be a hard man to get along with, Lily moaned. Iceberg. Episode 5. The Billionaire Treason and Plot. I thought a good thing to start talking about was how angry I am at how inconsiderate the news cycle is. Because we are two books away from Raise the Titanic, and then the whole Titanic sub thing had to go and happen. <laughs> You're right. That works. Very good. We that could was... have nailed this so hard. I am I'm laser awake now. <laughs> you could have been in on all the marketing. <laughs> That's crazy. Cross promotion. Ah. Ah. It's my fault for not, not getting this going fast enough. Oh, sure. If you would like to take the blame, I fully endorse that. <laughs> um, everyone knew they were paste. They were they were sea pasta yeah. or sea pizza. So, uh, so much money. So many resources and man hours devoted to uh, siphoning them out of the sea. I know. You know, getting a big sieve, a large colander. Kind of get the bits and pieces. I can't believe that after, what, 10 days, they actually did, like, find the wreckage and bring it up and return it to shore. Like, in the middle of the Atlantic, they found basically a broken refrigerator and brought it back to shore to be examined. How much time and effort and resources went into narrowing narrowing that down and gathering all that up? It's insane. Or what have we betrayed in intelligence by finding it so quickly? Like, oh, now, the Ameri- now they know the Americans have the... Uh... American Finder 10,000, right? You know, that do, do, you do pay your taxes, get over here, bud. Mm-hmm. And they did have the sonar, like the American military mentioned, like after they had confirmation that the sub had been destroyed, they were like, oh yeah, we heard the implosion on Sunday, but we didn't want to say anything and reveal our, our underwater listening abilities. Well, then why say anything now? <laughs> Don't, they, then just keep your mouth shut, guys. That's what I thought, but I've seen people talk about how they didn't want to say it and be wrong, but they're, they'll absolutely, oh. they, they will absolutely brag about being right. Wow. I appreciate that. <laughs> That's a overpromise and underdeliver is usually what I do. So I appreciate yeah. the other way around. Your tax dollars at work. But the, oh, it looked like a burrito, like you a, a burrito that you just stack humans in, okay. like a minivan just sunk to the bottom. Oh, it's it's triggered my claustrophobia like crazy. It looked so terrifying. I did not like those pictures. I didn't like the pictures. I didn't like that. I didn't know what a, a submersible was versus a submarine and that they had no autonomy. And I'm not sh- clear that the people in the submersible knew either if they knew that distinction. <laughs> no, I have learned so much about the difference between them. Uh, mostly the difference between that and the one that James Cameron used to find the Titanic way back when he was filming Titanic and the whole movie was just an excuse for him to find the Titanic. Yes. All of, all, all of these safety features, like there was one very cool safety feature on his submarine where they had these ballast tanks that were sealed by... Gunpowder, right? A certain alloy. No, no. Uh, they were sealed by oh. a certain alloy that broke down after 18 hours underwater. So no matter what, after 18 hours, they went boom and shot you to the surface. Oh. And there was nothing you could do. 
they had a dead man safety switch. Yes. Good. Good to have those. I also know that he said he wouldn't go into a container like that without the ability to get out. He wouldn't be sealed in. And his craft had um, a door that can be blown off. Ideally, that's not happening underwater, but <laughs> he wouldn't get into an enclosed area without the ability to get out. These people were riveted in with 17 or 18 bolts. They're sending us messages by Morse code, mostly swearing. He said something about my mother. It wasn't kind. <laughs> and the other thing I can't believe, now the whole sordid engineering history of that uh, submersible came out. And not only was it made out of aircraft grade uh, carbon fiber, which, you know, is not designed to withstand exterior pressures like that. It's No, it, it, air is a completely different direction. But it was expired aircraft grade carbon fiber that was no longer suitable for airplanes. So he got it cheap. Well, it's the cost cutting measures of businessmen that will save us all. I know. The ingenuity. Did you hear he had a voice snippet that oh made my spine tingle. He was talking about the acrylic on the portals is really was really special because if it started to fail, you'd get a warning signal and you'd hear it sizzle. And you can hear sizzling. And I cannot imagine somebody telling me this in like a, hey, buy a ticket. This is in the brochure. Get on the cruise. Because <laughs> no, that's not a selling point. If the window makes a noise, please tell us. Billionaires make no sense. The rules don't apply to them. Oh. And I think they think that applies to like physics and gravity and consequences. There's no depths of history in our, <laughs> in our culture anymore. We're all speeding towards the heat death of the universe. And I'm buckled in. And all of these things tie neatly into our topic today. Yes, I guess we should do the introduction. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Custler Hustlers, the only Clive Custler podcast available at all, anywhere. Check your retailers. They, they don't have them. Only we do. If you find another one, let us know. I'm Nancy, and that's Topper over there. And today we are on chapters 12 through whatever we get to. I want to get to the end of 15 just because there's... So much in 15. This was like, chapter 15 is almost the reason I wanted to do this podcast. We're finally <laughs> here. I have some ranting. Oh, I have a whole section highlighted that I wanted to read aloud. In I think it was 15. Yeah, we were halfway through 12. Oh, 16. Gosh darn it. Yes, with Pitt getting along with his chauffeur, right? Yes. Is that where we stopped? Uh, his uh, not the CIA agent buddy, because back then it was the NIA, I suppose. Uh, Jerome P. Lilly the Fourth, the fabulous name. It was the CIA back then. It was the CIA right after World War II. Well, the War Department went to the C Department of Secrets went to the CIA. Um, this I think is just a made up, like Numa. Yeah, probably. He didn't want to piss anybody off at the CIA. He probably made a deal with uh, one of his uh, car friends. I <laughs> was going to make a joke there, but that went nowhere. I went down a road, didn't have a destination. Sorry. It's like some of these books. About, yes. Not this one, though. He he definitely has a weird plan for this book, but take us away. This is, this is just a strange book. This is a very odd book. So we're still in chapter 12. He had putzed around with the airman at the previous destination when he was trying to find the VIN number for the airplane he took down, and now he's messing around with his chauffeur. Battle of Wills, Battle of Wits. Pitt has a, a tool in his ear, a screwdriver. Yeah. And the guy's like, I'm I'm so macho. Just take the gun out of the glove box. Point that at me. Don't hurt my ear. It hurts. It's ouchy. And then they come to a man, a manly understanding after that. Yeah. They have some witty back and forth. NIA guy uh, basically rattles off for the sake of the audience everything about Dirk Pitt so we know how cool he is. He's so cool. And Dirk's like, okay, I guess I believe you. But it also seems that 
uh, Sandecker knew all ab- all about this whole thing. Because Sandecker talked to Jerome. They talked about how hard it was going to be to fool Pitt. But nobody told Pitt that he was basically being abducted by an American spy after his adventure at the airport. So Dirk, again, almost killed another ally, which is, I think, is the third one in this book. Well, he almost killed the airman. Like, he slammed that guy to the ground <laughs> for a seated position onto, onto pavement. That's attempted murder. No, nah, you can walk but that off. He's sending that guy a case of whiskey, so it's fine. Yes. And, you know, Sandecker would be on the hook for a negligent homicide because if he did kill uh, his new chauffeur, anybody could have seen that coming. So Sandecker would have had more of a consequence than Pitt mm-hmm. in terms of uh, responsibility. Nothing would have happened, but <laughs> this story would have, got, would have come on. Sandecker's the one who has authority over Pitt, so it should have been him to tell Pitt what's going on. But no one tells anyone anything because it's a lot more fun that way. Well, that how are you going to be... Um, a loose cannon if everyone has, you know, accountings of the cannons. Exactly. But we fix that now because now uh, in chapter 13, we have a parlor scene in the back of a cab. Yes. The chauffeur, Lily, tells him, oh, we are off to a poetry reading. And Dirk's like, oh, <laughs> I wish I'd been shot instead. Well, that's at the very end. Like uh, most of chapter 13 is Lily updates us on the plot for what's going on, specifically talking about all of these mines being nationalized in South America, and all these great mining companies have secretly merged into a global mega mega conglomerate run by a mysterious voice. Again, this is this is 1975, so this is happening during and immediately after the whole red wave across South America, the spread of communism, with all of these mines being nationalized and American prices for things like copper and nickel going up. So I can't imagine what the propaganda must have been like in America at the time that Clive Cussler was writing this. Well, I was only alive for two years in the 70s, so I missed <laughs> the, the the show that was going on here. As I understand it, the, the things were popping off and uh, people were thrown out of helicopters and it was yes. the U.S. government that was mostly doing that. But no one in 1975 knows that yet. <laughs> no, no, of course not. <laughs> they, were, they were still too you know entrenched in their colors of brown. <laughs> 500 shades of, you know, the Inuit people have thousands of words for the for snow. And in the 70s, baby boomers had thousands of word, words for the color brown. It's where we got taupe from. <laughs> I was just going to say, there's beige, there's taupe, there's tan, there's sand, there's crap. I'm running out. Uh, khaki, sand khaki. Ah, <laughs> Greenish brown, brownish green, grayish. Yeah, I wasn't alive in the 70s at all, but we are getting towards one of my little uh, historical points of interest. So I'm trying to keep it under wraps for now. Oh, okay. But it, it seems that, you know, the NIA through Mr. Lilly, Jerome, Jerry to his friends, got onto this whole thing because they found that the, the lax, the, uh, iceberg yacht before it was in the iceberg yacht before it was in the iceberg was going from port to port city to city in South America. And every time it did, the mines would get nationalized. I yeah, uh, and the the U.S. would take notice of that if somebody else was doing it. You'd be like, hey, is there another department sent down here to do this? Who's taking our Who's taking our jobs? Were we outsourced? So there's some weird link between the Furies and the Lax and the mineral probe and the mining companies and South America and Iceland. Clive Cussler's conspiracy board is starting to get very tangled. I know, and Lily's very concerned because it might be a monopoly. Yes. You can't have monopolies. Oh, no. Heaven forbid. 
In capitalism? No, God, you can't have monopolies. I saw Columbo with lots of carpeting. The main character went to visit his wife in their grand house, their mansion, marble bathroom, carpeted all the way up to the marble bathtub. Ew, that's too much carpet. It was brown carpet. Many it was it was an elevated ornate marble bathtub on a on a dais, dais? like like a wedding couple would be seated at. <laughs> I mean, it was platformed. So much brown carpeting. And then marble and arches. It was grand. Amadeus, Amadeus. The conglomerate was fully described to to Dirk Pitt, and then he gets told, you're going to a poetry reading. Yes. And he's like, oh, I'd rather go to a German mime show, but <laughs> he's, he's stuck with the poetry reading. The vast, far-reaching, and subtle powers of the American government have given him an invitation to poetry, but it's poetry read by Oscar Rondheim, who we've once again established as the villain, which we have to do like every two chapters now. Yes, and you have to say a deep Oscar, which is a great name. Oscar Rondheim. Uh, I hope it makes a comeback. Very nice. Chapter 14 starts off very judgy, talking about like how ethereal and beautiful all these mansions are, except Rondheim's. His is ugly. It, it's in the eye of the beholder. I mean, it's just an opinion, Dirk. <laughs> well, Dirk hates Rondheim, so I think Dirk hates everything associated with Rondheim. It, it makes sense. That Oscar, he, he has cars with wheels. What cars with wheels? I hate the cars with wheels. <laughs> to, to what extent is he going to per- pursue this line of hatred? But okay. I I, I kind of am behind him. I stand behind him on the poetry reading. Everybody's <laughs> going to have an eye roll if they get an invitation to a poetry reading. So he walks into this party. Uh, the, there's Kirsty Fury. She's beautiful. There's Rondheim. He's tall and evil. And Pitt, because I forgot this again, because we only do this every week or so, sweeps in as as flaming as you could possibly write in the 1970s. He is a hot Cheeto. Yes, he really <laughs> is. He's dressed in red. He's got a red belt on, uh, or red boots on, patent red boots and a brown belt. So he is like a flaming hot Cheeto. And <laughs> he moseys up to the, the main villain, the big honcho, Oscar, and Oscar is disgusted. Yes. This is the most effective weapon Dirk has ever utilized. The <laughs> psychological torture. The gay fear defense. The ball yeah. the, the the orb that is surrounding him with the gay safety is curious and intense. Like you know he's gonna get beaten up, but you feel like they will kill him. It's very complicated. <laughs> In a hate crimes kind of way. I think he's hoping everybody will be too like disgusted to punch him. Yeah, you the stereotypes he's working with are very clearly defined in kind of a vibes way in the writing. You're like, oh, he's he's really hoping people are just like ill. Ah, oh, it must have been just devastatingly awful to be gay in the 70s and be anywhere near Clive Cussler. Yeah. Although we have established so far that Dirk is essentially immortal because he went up against a hundred foot long hydrofoil full of armored men with a fire axe and a bottle of gasoline and he won. So. Oh, yes. That was earlier the same day, right? Yes. Well, I'm not sure how long he was in the hospital for. They haven't uh, mentioned how exhausted he is. Although I guess he falls asleep during the poetry reading. So he's probably, you know. That's the first time he falls asleep too. In in canon, that's the first time he falls asleep. Oh yeah. He's not knocked out. He always passes out. You're right. He doesn't succumb (laughs) to the the darkness. This is the first time he just closes his eyes. Just falls asleep. Willingly. He he willingly closes his eyes. It's it's beautiful to see. Yeah. They're looking over the party. But he flirts with Kirsty. Yes. Titty Galore tells him who everyone is. She knows all the rich guys. I was going to say, he flirts with Kirsty and he flirts with TD. He pinches her ass while they're talking to Rondheim. 
and she like bends his fingers backwards to get them to get them off of that yeah that's not flirting when you're when you're trying to break a man's finger that's not flirting that's retaliation or defense she was assaulted you're yes. just you're just doing your your job you're narrating you're telling the guy the information he needs what the hell this lady's just trying to do her job i think dirk was worried and he had to remind her by the way i'm still straight oh you're right of course that never even occurred to me <laughs> just in case you forgot of course oh and simply because i every time i see uh this word written down or d'oeuvres i think of uh this comedian nate bargazzi his first job he didn't know the word hors d'oeuvres as written so he went around as this as a caterer waiter saying horse divorce horse divorce that was one of my mom's favorite jokes horse divorce or her horse duvers would you like some horse duvers she loved her horse horse duvers oh that's cute in my family we have uh instead of bludgeoning it's bludgeoning <laughs> it came up because when uh, my daughter was learning to read she wanted to read it's to, to really get into reading beyond just comprehension and for school she's, <laughs> she was reading the um oh what are those archery books that all the girls are reading girl had braids jennifer lawrence hunger games the actress would play that's the that's it she uh she was really into that and bludgeoning came up often and as we didn't say it in the house normally like hey honey pass the bludgeoning that doesn't happen <laughs> or honey can you get me a bludgeoning never comes up as a word to be read aloud, it's a funny word. Bloodgion. So the oh, and Pitt is getting toasted on on this uh in this chapter. He's yeah, no one likes him. He uh, fills no one likes him. Everyone's edging him out. They're being very cold. Oh, that kind of toasted. Sorry, I was. <laughs> and he fills a brandy snifter up to the rim. Yeah. Could you imagine? The, do you know? Have you <laughs> seen one? You might. They used to just be like on pianos at at diners for. <laughs> tips for the guy playing the piano every once in a while like yeah. to see one in person with somebody drinking it's kind of ridiculous it's like they're holding a fish tank yeah it's like those giant margarita bowls <laughs> yes exactly of expensive brandy you're holding a salad bowl a banquet salad bowl with a stem and he's filled it to the brim he would be ossified <laughs> he does this twice he fills but it he's, twice he's just so goddamn tough though well he's tough and now he's tranquilized and it suits him well. I guess he's trying to be more social and more outgoing because he keeps walking up to these groups of people and everyone's giving him the cold shoulder and looking at him funny. And that's when he goes to TD, who explains that this room is nothing but like the 30 richest people in the world. Yes. And she knows this not because of her job, but she says, you know, a single girl's got to keep a lookout for the, <laughs> you know, the rich single man. Like, oh, TD. Always be gold digging. You can be so much better. Eh? Coal tycoons, diamond mine owners. How how odd that... Bauxite barons. After an entire chapter about mining magnates, now we have an entire room full of mining magnate. That's odd. I'm sure it's not related. How did that happen? Chekhov's miners? <laughs> and events break out, and suddenly, as, as Dirk is filling up his swimming pool of brandy, uh, he realizes that Titty's tea, TD is not near him. <laughs> and this is this is after the poetry reading, which um, Oscar shows off his memorizing skills. And we are introduced to the um, the Mariner's poem. At the start of the poetry reading, he's just so bored by the poetry that he's mentally undressing Kirsty, and he looks over at Titi and sees her staring at Kirsty, and he wonders if she's also mentally undressing Kirsty. Oh, yes. And if I if I was Titi, why not switch teams? <laughs> There's nothing for you. 
where where you're shopping is a store that's not for you. <laughs> on the one hand, you have Dirk. Pack your pack your bags and leave. <laughs> on the other hand, possibly the richest woman in the world. If you could swing it, I would shoot for the moon. You'll land amongst the stars. But yeah, Rondheim does his weird poetry memorization thing. Yes, people spout off the beginnings of poems, and he will tell you the rest of the poem and the author. And if he can't, he'll donate $50,000 to charity. He gets to Dirk, who's still dressed like a, um, if for all your Joe Rogan listeners, you know that mushroom that he thinks civilization was based on, the red and white one that people lick? <laughs> That's what this guy's dressed like. <laughs> the red and white Santa mushroom. And if you're a bit older than that, it's one of the mushrooms from Mario. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it is. Uh, and... Oh, actually, um, excuse me. I'm all over my words today. They are just coming out unclearly. So it's a great night to podcast. <laughs> so Dirk's hanging out with the rich guys dressed like Charo. My name is Charo. I shake my maracas. And he's being very overtly gay, disgusting men everywhere. And he's wondering why he's being iced out. He notices to he's drifted away from him and things get more serious with, oh, what's his name? Not General Kelly. F. James Kelly. Yes. Starting to make a uh, address to the crowd. Now we're done with the poetry, and they break out the cigars for everybody except Pitt. They break out more brandy for everybody except Pitt, and they start mingling. Yeah, refill his own glass. And they start mingling, except for Pitt, who has a gun jammed into his spine by Kirstie. I guess. I, f- I completely forgot that happened, and I've read this book like less than a year ago. She seems oddly bored with holding the gun. She's like, oh, yeah. I've missed doing this. But then Oscar comes over and tells her, no, a man should be holding the gun, babe. Yeah. My notes just say Rondheim is sexist for a bit and then takes the gun. Yes. He's like, a woman should be this. A man should be doing this. Run along. And she's like, oh, I, it was fun while it lasted. And she honestly sounds bored and walks off. Like, maybe this is a rich people kink. Oh, yes. And they come into the room with the AR, AR-15s, 17s. It's a number. AR-17s. That's too higher. Oh, I might be getting tired. <laughs> As an American, I feel like I failed my nation. <laughs> With S. I'm a Canadian. I'm allowed to make AR-15 jokes. Yeah. Yes. Me not knowing the number, I'm unforgivable. <laughs> How can I show up at school tomorrow? Well, it was an AR-17 in the book, which I guess was some other kind of gun. I have no idea. Uh, okay, then. I feel better about that. Oh, the AR-17 is a shotgun. Nice. Are you rooting for the bad guys? Is that what you're doing here? No, you just don't see henchmen with shotguns very often, yeah, cool you know? Guns. <laughs> it's always machine gun. Okay. I'd be, uh, honestly, a bit more scared of a shotgun. Me? Chainsaw. That That's going to scare me. It's all of the above. All of the Okay, yeah, that, that's the AR-19. <laughs> oh, okay. Very, very good. Now we get the evil parlor scene. There's so much parlor scene happening in this episode, in this chapter. Do you want to take it away? Yes. Yes. It's, it's the businessman's plot part two. Yes. Thank you. Uh, all of these businessmen from around the world. I'm so glad you've heard of that because that's one of the things I have highlighted here, but keep going. The F. James Kelly character comes to light and he says he's pondered the problem of what to do with his wealth. He doesn't have any heirs and he doesn't want to leave it to backbiting businessmen or bootlickers. So what to do with this vast wealth? And he and his fellow rich people have come up with this League of Gentlemen kind of scenario to determine what to do with their vast wealth therefore vast responsibility and they put it to computers so they've got the hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy module running and they're running the supercomputer for the meaning of life <laughs> only it's just what to do with their money what to do with their money to make the most good impact and some scheme was hatched in the beginning starts now and 
half of the room is very confused. And they were like, well, what is this plan that you have? And he details this plan to take over Latin America, create this utopia starting in Bolivia, I believe. Bolivia. And some people are outraged. You can't do that. That's messing with democracy. Pearls are clutched, metaphorically. The women have left the room. And people are horrified at what this man is proposing. If you read it now, it seems kind of tame. But yeah, I mean, he goes step by step. Like He's going to take over South America? They did try that. We know this story. <laughs> well, we know now that they tried it. At the time, it was literally happening. So there's no way that any, anybody in America knew what was actually happening in South America. Of course not. But that is one of the one of the side rants I was about to go on. But yeah, he talks about how they're going to adhere to strict business principles to make a perfect world. And they start with an impoverished country, gain control of its monetary resources, which they can do because they're rich, eliminate its leaders, and then buy it out. Which is what America was already doing in the 1970s, because this was two years after the United States and the CIA overthrew Chile. And they overthrew Chile because they were using computers to make a utopian socialist country as part of like the the big red wave in South America. Are you serious? Yeah. They they had a computer program for Utopia. Well, it wasn't a program. They had like uh, one of the first functioning wide-scale internets, internets. It was called Project Cybersyn. And what they had was they had computer terminals linking all the mines, all the factories, all the cities, all the government buildings, and they were constantly feeding data to each other and optimizing, you know, how much we have to produce, what we have to send where. And in the space of two years, it had completely turned the entire economy around. Okay. And other countries were looking at Chile going, that looks really cool. We want in on this. And because all the American uh, hardware companies had iced them out, IBM and all that, most of the computers were supplied by Russia and most of the programmers were supplied by the UK. Oh, so this had to, this had to be stopped. Yeah, and then in 1973, Augusta Pinochet comes out of nowhere, absolutely not funded by the Americas in any way whatsoever, and kills everybody involved. Yes. To the- and they destroy Project Cybersyn and start pushing people out of helicopters. Yeah, it was a, um, I didn't know about Project Cybersyn. I knew about Pinochet. Wow, that's amazing. So Clive Custer was really paying attention to foreign affairs. I think he was paying attention to whatever the newspapers were allowed to print about foreign affairs. Oh, there's that. Because this is a very one-sided part and one-sided version of what was actually happening. Like These countries were independently doing this thing with computers to turn their country around. And America, uh, you know, killed them. Oh, yes. But now we have all the billionaires going, but if, but if we do it, it'll work. And then I have a whole chunk here of the business plot pasted into my pasted into my notes. <laughs> now, um, now billionaires just either run for office themselves or buy their senators. I, I don't know which is easier if you have to register for one or the other. But we only have 100 senators. You can just buy them and then whatever monopoly or n- nefarious plot you want to unfold, it'll just take a few years. You don't have to like go full... Full crazy. Or we had a game show host as a president. But I urge all of our listeners, if we have any listeners, to look up the business plot, which was a conspiracy in 1933 to overthrow FDR. But like seriously overthrow. And install Smedley Butler as dictator. Yeah, no, they had thousands of troops marching on Washington. This was happening because FDR got in and immediately regulated the banks and gave people jobs and money. And that was communism. People were horrified. 
all the richest people in America got all the World War I vets together who were angry and said, here's what we're going to do. Which was, they were so horrified by Social Security. And um, it made people people's blood boil that you would get old people off the streets. Really bothering. But Henry Ford was pissed off. <laughs> uh, anyway, there's way too much history to get into here. And I'm going to get off my soapbox. There is a lot of history that Clive incorporated into this book and he did a damn good job with you know maybe he stole some parts of lock stock and barrel but he did use the seeds here and struggle them into many he got so much of it right and he got just enough of it wrong to make me so angry <laughs> ah but yes i really feel like he's he was an ally with how he's dressing uh pit up and how pit just takes a beating from oscar uh later on yeah and he he's trying to stay in character and he just oh my god that's amazing <laughs> He takes the beating. Clive Custler was, was very a man ahead of his time in this chapter. He's he's coming across like, ah, oh, gay people are people. This guy's getting a beating. Whether like he's writing him as you know a person through and through with experiencing the disgust, whatever you want to call his his experience as portrayed in the book. But it's not. He's listing off the disgust, but he's not. His character isn't exhibiting it. So Dirk isn't disgusted that he has to be gay. Mm-hmm. Everybody else is. Which I feel like in the 70s is like hugely awkward. Everybody else is, but he's not. He just thinks it's like a role to play. Yeah, he's not repulsed by it. And, and that in and of itself is huge for the time that this book was written. Low bars, low bar. And it, yes. <laughs> Sorry. I, I, I knew boys that would be like, oh, I killed 13 cats this week. People in Brooklyn hated cats in the 80s. Don't know what was going on there. Huh. That's what people were doing in the 80s. The 70s, I was cognizant for. If they were doing that to house pets, what, what were they doing to people? Nothing. We know. It only gets worse. It's why it's why time machines are a bad idea. Nobody wants to go back. Not even one day. <laughs> Claude Custer was really a, a heck of a guy for this plot and incorporating lots of different elements into it. I give him that. And he gets full arcs of misogyny every time for how Pitt treats uh, Titty Morale. And bonus points for racism, because every time they talk about South American countries... It is always in the sense of civilizations that are dying in the gutter and, you know, these backward savages will become cavemen if we don't save them. No, they were doing okay until you fucked them all up. Yes, I believe mud people was a phrase that was used. Yeah, that happens. And the, the rich people saying that they come up with the utopia because now that comes up for like um, sea vessels, utop- utopian sea vi- villages, which Clive Kessler, I'm sure that We've got to encounter that in one of his books, Utopian Sea Village. That has to be coming. Oh, God. Sea Org and uh, L. Ron Hubbard going around the world on cruise ships trying to find treasure and oh, yeah. starting sex cults. But I'm, I'm sure we'll come across a, a Clive Custer novel with a, a bad guy trying to make a, a seastead, a libertarian seastead. Oh, God. I hope so. So it's a plot you've forgotten. It's in there somewhere. <laughs> I've only read about half of them. So. Uh, I think this chapter ends with Dirk getting his ass handed to him by uh, by Oscar. But he's a little bit, tiny bit drunk after having two full brandy snifters of brandy. Roosh brandy, it's said multiple times. He he goes on this whole spiel uh, after, what, F. James Kelly is done talking about their business plot. And he wanders, he wanders over to the piano and refills his snifter and keeps drinking because he knows he's not leaving this building alive. So he might as well die drunk so he doesn't feel the bullets. So he is pounding Brandy, and then he just starts being a dick to Oscar Rondheim 
and talks about how he knows how the hydroplane exploded because he did it. He reveals everything that happened. He doesn't reveal that he's not flamingly gay, but everything else he does, it just makes Oscar angrier and angrier and angrier. He's, and then he's thrown into a room, and at some point Oscar comes back on, back into the room with a, a gi on, and Dirk's like, I know what that is, you're wearing gi. This is some weird mood whiplash. This was not what I expected to happen after the villainous plot speech and henchmen with shotguns separating the crowd into the believers and the people who know too much and have to be killed. Yes, it's a costume change. Ta-da. We have to get a side quest. This is one of those side quests where you fight the boss too early and you lose, but don't worry, that's supposed to happen. Yes. And Dirk just seems so pleased with himself. He's Oscar came in, he's wearing a garb known, I know what that is, gay. I'm so worldly. Which is like, yeah, you, were, you went to a karate in third grade? Yeah, and you know what a gay is? I'm impressed. Well, this was the 1970s. This was like the beginning of the spread of martial arts in North America as just like a thing you could do. Oh, it's it's pre-karate kid. Yeah. We have no Mr. Miyagi yet. So, of course, there's nothing to build on. All you have is Bruce Lee. All you have is stuff that you've seen on TV, but there's nowhere that you can go to learn, really. No, I, I guess not. So this was very exotic. And Oscar, I guess, just demolishes a ragingly ragingly drunk Dirk. And we know from uh, world events that lots of people uh, do that in a sport. So it's probably a pastime in the 70s. If it wasn't going to be Dirk, it was going to be some other guy that he would have jacked in there from you know, a downtown bar. That's where you get the costume change ready to go. I'm sure he murders at least like one mook a week. This is a rich people kink, after all. Oh, God, yes. It, this is a nice white shot party. That's what this is. This is all billionaires. This is all people who insist the rules don't apply to them. They're talking about uh, long-term principles on what they're going to do, you know, with all their money, uh, knowing that they won't live to see it. Long-termism, if you will. All this ethical altruism to use their money to save the backwards, savage civilizations of the world. Which is hilarious because that idea is almost quaint because the billionaires today just want to <laughs> blast themselves into outer space yeah, and have the, the coolest thing. I want to be worshipped. To think of them as, as wanting a, a better future is adorable. Yeah, I mean, that, that's the weird part of this is James Kelly and all the rest give like what almost seems like a sensible explanation for what they're doing and why they're doing it, even if they casually drop in you know, yes, we're going to murder all the leaders of these countries and anyone who gets in our way. And they're going to have a Department of Assassination, which is probably going to be the main department it's looking like, <laughs> structurally speaking. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's one thing Pitt mentions is like, the people in these countries are just going to sit back and let you kill their governments. And he he actually fires back with, oh, no, we've got marketing and advertising department to take care of this. We're just going to buy all the press and control what they see in here. Well, that's grim. Oh, yeah, it's easy. Yes, it is. And that's why that's so grim. <laughs> when you put it that way, that makes this book, that turns this book from a jaunty summary to, God damn, shut up, Clive. <laughs> I'm just trying to read at the beach. There's a lot of hindsight, haha, oh, that's not funny in this book. It's like um, you go to the movies to relax. You don't go to the movies to be like, oh, the Schindler's List, god damn it, or uh, that's a, that's a tangent <laughs> right. I can't even begin to identify. So- I'm sorry. I'm very tired. Okay. <laughs> we'll wrap this up in a minute just because I don't have anything after he gets his ass kicked. Yes. But at some point during all this, Dirk mentions that like Honeywell wasn't supposed to die 
because Honeywell was a member of Hermit Limited, this secret shadowy group. Oh, yes, that's what they named their cabal. Yes, Hermit Limited. So Honeywell, the scientist from the beginning, was in on this. Yes, he was the co-founder of the probe, the co-inventor of the probe. He knew all about the probe, even though he pretended to not to not know and only read about it. Yes, this does sound like a Bilderberg party. There's guns, there's probes. <laughs> Bohemian Grove. <laughs> there's probably a large owl somewhere that they're going to burn in effigy. Oh, God. They're going to dance around naked with funny masks on. No, that's just Iceland on a Tuesday. Oh, really? I've got... You should work for the Chamber of Commerce. That should be on a t-shirt. <laughs> Iceland after dark. <laughs> that that could be days, so you have to hold on. <laughs> Toko in the summer, Iceland after dark. So yeah, uh, Oscar beats Dirk senseless and bloody. Yeah. And uh... Busts his hands up, busts his face up, puts him in arm locks. And we've got the uh, conglomerate of hermits. Almost my only note there is, where's Al? Oh, poor Al. I forgot about him. Oh. I know. Why isn't Al in this book? Al is the person who, who has to get his ass kicked so we know that somebody's a physical threat. He's a, he is a nice warning. I do miss him. I Something must be wrong with his mother. We'll find out at the end yes. of the book. Because it's always going to be an Italian and his ma. His poor sainted mother. Or a uh, accident at the Tortellini factory. He fell down a, uh, a flight of Scungili. <laughs> I'm not allowed to make that joke. So yes, I, I suppose we'll end this episode with Dirk finally, at long last, blacking out. Oh, yes. But whether it's from alcohol or head trauma, we don't really know, do we? It could be both. It could be a tie. I think it was a photo finish between the alcohol and the head trauma. It could be a tie. Why not both? He, fl- he fluffs away into dreamy dreamland on a river of brandy. Sounds really good right about that. That does sound good. And so go with us all. Good night, everyone. <laughs> go floating brandy. Don't smoke. Oh, God. Oh, that's grim. <laughs> oh. This has been Kusla Hustlers. Your hosts have been Topper and Nancy. Find us on Twitter and Instagram at Kusla Hustlers. Hustlers.